You're listening to the Poetry of Impact podcast, illuminating the unheard stories of today's top leaders in impact with your host, Gino Borges. Thanks again for joining us for another episode of the Poetry of Impact. In this episode, we'll chat with Sam Adams, CEO and co-founder of Vert Asset Management and co-author of Your Essential Guide to Sustainable Investing. I met Sam through former Poetry of Impact guest, Brent Kissel. Sam comes to us with a wealth of knowledge around sustainable investing and opens up about his why, a combination of the future, his kids, and the past, his parents. Sam is also a passionate mountaineer, which plays a part in his efforts against climate change. He talks about how his parents have influenced him in the areas of justice and efficiency, and goes on to share what his kids teach him about both his day-to-day life and his long-term outlook. Sam believes that as more and more people have real, palpable experiences of climate change, we will see more people start to seek solutions. And as an advisor in the sustainability space, it's his job to connect people to what's possible. All in all, Sam leaves us with the message to love the natural world as it is and honor its magic and majesty. Take time, slow down, and drop in with Sam Adams. Hi, welcome, Sam. Hi, Gino. Thanks for having me. For sure. It's been great. And I mean, thanks for the patience and um, for, I see, I know we've been trying to get you on the show for a while um, on this podcast, but part of the delay was an exciting announcement that you were wait, that you're waiting to share. So I'll let you sort of jump in on what uh, your life work is culminating into at the moment. Yeah. Um, my life uh, career these days, or at least for the last 10 years, is all about sustainable investing and, and helping people uh, get sustainable and impact investing into their lives. And uh, finally wrote a book about it. Uh, your Essential Guide to Sustainable Investing. Uh, my co-author is Larry Swedro, uh, and it's being published now. So it's out and ready, uh, which is very exciting. What was that journey like? At what point did you decide to say, yeah, you know, it's time to take what's in my head and what I've been sharing and actually putting in, put it uh, into a document? Well, I've wanted to write a book for a really long time. I think I wrote it down as one of my personal goals back in the 90s, Um, but I didn't have the burning topic at the time. Uh, And as I got more into sustainable investing and learned more about it, I realized that that's what I wanted to write about. But then it's very intimidating, you know, (laughs) having never written a book to do something like that. And I ran into my old friend, Larry Swedro, who's written, this is his 20th book, Um, and he knows a lot about researching investment strategies and seeing how they do, uh, but he didn't know anything about sustainable investing. And I knew a lot about sustainable investing. Um, and so together we got, uh, we got together and wrote the book. It took about six months. Um, and it's incredibly hard, Gino, in the early days to, just get a sentence down because my, you know, writing muscles were very underdeveloped. And uh, as it went through it, the writing part um, got easier uh, for me, thank God, or else it would have taken a lot longer than six months. Now, there's a lot of books out there on sustainable investing. What in particular did you think um, that your voice in particular would add to uh, the ongoing conversation? Well, I guess it's a it, this, this one is a user's guide, 
right? It talks about what sustainable investing is. It defines the difference between ESG and SRI and impact and all those jargony terms that are now used interchangeably. So it's really confusing space for investors. Um, it talks about who invests for sustainability. And one of my favorite chapters is why, like what are people's motivations and what are they trying to accomplish? Um, and uh, then Larry does a deep dive on the evidence, what it does for performance, and whether it has an impact on public companies and private companies. Do they actually change their behavior when investors say they want more responsible behavior from those companies? And um, there's good ev evidence for that. Uh, and then there's at the end of the book, there's a, a, a very practical how-to guide, like how to build your portfolio, how to select investments, how to choose what you want to make sure that you're getting um, the impact that you want from your portfolio. Um, and so um, it's, 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 I think it's the most practical tome out there on uh, the subject. Uh, and it's also fair and balanced. It, 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 um, it does deal with the fact that there are trade-offs, right? You want to have really catalytic impact capital in the private space. Your return series might look different than, you know, something in the more mainstream space. And that's fine uh, if you go into it with open eyes. And that's what we're trying to help investors understand is some of those trade-offs and where the benefits are and where the pitfalls are. So you talk about that why. Uh, do you know... Um Oh, I see. I mean, a couple issues around the why. First of all, I'm, I'm interested on uh, what's your why uh, for actually being in the space uh, in general. And then um, what's been your experience on actually trying to help other people with their why? Yeah. The <laughs> Sometimes I like the really short, pithy answers from really smart people. I was at a a sustainable investing conference about 10 years ago and Tom Steyer was there and someone asked him his why, why he devoted his life to climate change. And he said, because I have children and I can read. And, <laughs> you know, that's enough in and of itself. Right. Uh, but I'm a climber and a skier. I love mountains. I've, I've uh, been playing in the mountains since I was a child and I get there as often as I can. And when you spend that much time in the mountains, you've seen the changes as a result of climate change. And you want to do anything you can to slow down or reverse them because it's, it's actually quite devastating. And of course, that's the most selfish of reasons, right? My climbing and my skiing. There's much bigger problems as a result of climate change than, than less snow and, and those types of things. But um, I get part of, part of my why is is I, I have a, uh, from my mother, I get a strong sense of justice. And from my father, I get a strong predisposition towards efficiency. <laughs> and um, there seem very different, but they combine together in sustainability. When you see uh, the world using outdated tools and too many resources and creating too much pollution when we don't have to, because we have better solutions and we're just not implementing them because some vested interest is protecting their status quo. That just, it, 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 it bothers me on the efficiency level from my father and it bothers me on a justice level from my mother. And I just, I get very passionate and I want to do something about it. 
And what's been your experience on sharing uh, your why with others, but also trying to engender the why? Because I think that's really crucial um, as actually a vetting tool, because the investment space can feel overwhelming if you don't have that why part down. It just all just seems like it's all possible. But if the why is somewhat of a discernment tool to a large extent as well. Well, the a very interesting part of this journey has been realizing that people's whys are already there. They just were taught or somehow in the process of investing or using their money, they were told to di- divorce themselves from their why, right? So the experience most people have with their capital, and let's stay with investing capital for a moment here, is you make as much money as possible with that and you don't really consider what impact it has on people or planet or impact it even has on you, right? You're giving that money to an advisor or a broker or into a mutual fund and you don't really know what it's doing. You don't know what it's investing in. You just know the numbers that come back are good or bad. And so it's a very disconnected feeling and people are told, in particular financial advisors often are saying, you need to disconnect that so your emotions aren't part of your investing. And that's really bizarre because there's no other realm and no other area in our lives where we divorce our feelings, our emotions, our intentions from what we do. I mean, when we shop, <laughs> when we say every decision that we make, you know, we're thinking about these ourselves and our why, right? So I often use the the story, we renovated a house. um, And while we were doing that, we wanted to make it energy efficient and net zero. And we wanted to make it a healthy space. And we wanted to make it comfortable for people and bring families over and all these types of things. And of course, we didn't want to spend too much money doing it, right? Those are all (laughs) parts of, you know, utilitarian benefits, expressive benefits, emotional benefits, and planetary benefits and people benefits. There's all kinds of things that go into that decision. But somehow, that makes sense, and everyone can understand that. But somehow, when you invest your money, you're supposed to say, just make it grow and don't ask any other questions. It's weird. But that's what we've been taught, or that's the space that we've ended up in. And so it's been great that when you start bringing up the why again, a lot of people are hungry to make that connection again to their money, to their capital. Uh, they just don't know how. But I encourage everyone to start with that why, because it's usually an easy opening because people really do want to be intentional with their capital. Uh, They just haven't been recently. So you mentioned you have a family. Uh, I have a young one. I think your kids are probably a little older than mine, but uh, I have a four-year-old who, um, very proud father, but humbled each and every day. Um, And, I consider parenting by far the hardest occupation I've ever had. Um, and yet also it's probably the, the most joyful as well. Uh, curious on how the raising of your children have influenced how you've approached the space as well. And both your kids have influenced you, not just the, the way that you're raising them, but also how you've influenced them. Like, what are you seeing from what, they're having to participate in and what they are participating in and how is that reverting back as a kind of a lens or as a teacher to you about like how how to navigate the present well there's 
let me just start off by getting the scary stuff out of the way. And again, I'll just say that, you know, when you have kids, it puts in, you know, you really start thinking about longer term futures, like 50, 75 years out. And that really brings those climate change perspectives uh, into clear focus. And you realize that the pain that we're going to put on those future generations is, um, uh, we're already feeling it now, but it's going to be extraordinary. And so you get highly motivated to do that. Um, and then it, it, that affects even smaller decisions. Like, you know, I grew up skiing, you know, almost every weekend in the, in the, in the, in the winter and spring. And I don't even know if I want to teach my kids how to ski, right? Because is there going to be enough snow? Is it going to be cold enough, uh, when they grow up? Right. Um, so it's, it's those things, but on the flip side, on the positive side, these children, the beauty in the fact that they're empty vessels and they are just filling themselves with knowledge. Um, they're just sponges and their lack of priors, if you will, when they interact with the world is a beautiful thing because they don't come with some of the biases that we've already established. Um, so they're naturally sustainable. It's a, it's an amazing <laughs> thing. They, they, they come out just thinking that way. And it reminds me to go back and say, you know, a couple of hundred years ago, we all kind of operated, you know, resource constrained and all those types of things. And kids are often very much like that. Um, they are certainly less judgmental and less um, skeptical of their neighbors, of their peers, and when they interact with people. Um, and sizes and shapes and colors of different people don't really bother them. It's just a beautiful thing. And so um, I guess the amazing thing for me about being a parent is the two-way learning. You know, like I know that they need to learn from me, but the things that I'm learning from them, I think is just as incredible. Yeah. I've been thinking about this for a while, but, um, you know, to some extent, um, kids allow you to, uh, when I'm with Nathan alone and really a one-on-one -on -one context. And in fact, before our call, uh, we were gardening for an hour and a half and, and getting our garden beds ready. And, um, and we, you know, I mean that hour, hour and a half is kind of the right kind of time frame, but, um, but it really has me, uh, enamored with this idea of how they amplify just sheer presence and, uh, or what I would refer to sort of as poetic time where everything just feels slow and uh, there's something nice about that because in the world, the front country world that you and I operate, which I would refer to as the world of grammar, that um, is, is about legislating life, about controlling life. Uh, we have our time frames, we have our time and space where our body needs to be here and there. And, and so our awareness kinds of bounces around and it's, very, it's a very stimulating kind of environment. But it's not necessarily a spiritual environment as a result of that because part of the spirit enters when like people are just overwhelmingly present uh, to some extent in the midst of sort of silence or stillness, but you can actually be in movement. But as long as that movement feels sort of organic and whatever activity you're, you're doing. 
So we were actually pulling weeds and we pulled sort of kind of this little small patch of weeds, you know, no, no more than like two feet by two feet of square uh, weeds and took us like 35 minutes. And normally the sort of the Protestant behavior in me would have been all utility, like let's get these out. And he was obviously struggling and uh, we just took one, you know, one weed out at a time. He had his shovel, I had his shovel and we were, uh, he had his shovel and we we're just working really slowly and. I think there's something very healthy to that. Uh, as I turn 50, I'm turning 50 this year. And a lot of what's on my mind is, is actually how, like, how do I live on that back end that perhaps I either conceded or forfeited, maybe voluntarily or involuntarily here in the near term to establish, you know, the material plane for myself and my family um, and for others as well. Uh, but how do I live in a way that actually honors the reality that I'm not taking any of this with me uh, and that I have a lesson to share and I have a moment to experience? And so that's, you know, it's kind of my takeaway uh, sort of in this midlife moment uh, as I spend life with a, a young child. I'm sure it gets different as, as the kids become a teenager. So I'm always interested in those people that are navigating the impact space, investment space, but are also parents and that are sort of just blending it all together. And it sounds like you're kind of putting it all just like <laughs> you only use different dichotomies and verticals to talk about yourself just for the sake of illustration. But internally, I feel, Sam, it just all kinds of bleeds together for you. I see. Is that true? Well, it, it does. And I love that part about it. Um, and what you said there about, you know, taking all that time to do something that could, could take a less time really speaks to me with my kids because, you know, I'd already said that my dad was the efficiency guy and I am, you know, hardwired to be like that. Um, and there are so many times when the better path with the kids is to be the least efficient you could be, right? Take as <laughs> much time to do, to do that weeding as possible and savor that moment, right? Like we go on, long walks and I'm trying to get to the end of the walk and I have to remind myself, why am I trying to get, you know, three <laughs> miles or five miles when we're just out here. Right. Um, and I really haven't met, I mean, there are some people you and I both know who are very good in the meditation space and being present and all those types of things, but it's hard to beat a kid in that space. Like though, the, my kids anyways can be either laser focused on something and so present that you can't even reach them or so distant because they're present in their own space. You can't reach them. And they're, they're very good at that. And that is instructive to me on a daily basis. I just wish I could get there too. <laughs> you know, I had a very similar story as you, Sam, about your uh, inspiration for the climate space. I started investing in, on my own account privately Um in climate about five years ago. And, but I really ramped it up after these capacity. I live in Reno, Nevada, which obviously gets just beaten up around July and August from smoke, uh, wildfire smoke. And two years ago during COVID, when not only were, weren't we able to go out and visit our friends and family, but then we also were inside uh, because of the extreme smoke in August. And my little son was just pressing his face up against the glass because he couldn't go outside. And we're outdoor junkies. Um, you know, um, as soon as we can go outside, we're outside. He's a, in fact, he's right now in the backyard, just playing in the sandbox uh, with his mom. And, you know, 
And for us to not be able to go outside, it started dawning on me. It's like, what in the world would a world be like if everybody has clinicized their body to the point where we're just inside all day long, all summer long in the West? And that, and that was a pretty harrowing vision for me to actually try to integrate. And I wasn't able to. And that's when I also became much more fervent about um, not only more active with my own resources, but trying to appeal to others to actually move resources into the space as well. I mean, do you have, I mean, you, I mean, you kind of talked about it from the, uh, the skiing and going up in the mountains. Uh, I would like to delve into just a little bit more of just the viscerality of the experience uh, because there is a certain amount of grieving and coping that kind of takes place while hoping as well. Right. It's like, mm, yeah. I mean, you feel the loss and yet you're trying to do the right thing. I'm, how how do you migrate between those emotional poles? Yeah, it's um, my cousin uh, builds uh, you know earth ship houses and straw bale houses in Santa Cruz. Oh, and his fun. wife is a is a, a vegan organic caterer, and so they're right in this space. And before I really got into the sustainability journey, I was reluctant to go into it because I saw them struggle with uh, the anger, you know, when you saw companies doing things and people doing things that were so counterproductive uh, and, and, and against human health, you know, this, this it's hard not to just be angry a lot. And I saw climate warriors as being angry. And I read Edward Abbey saying, you know, be a part-time warrior, you know, <laughs> save some time for yourself to go out and enjoy the uh, the nature and everything like that. So I knew what I was supposed, how was I was supposed to approach it, but I was really scared to go into it full time because I didn't want to be that angry uh, person. And I found that the really the thing to do is to just love what we have, r just deeply and honor it, and then you'll enjoy it. So I'll give you a story. In Chamonix, France, where after my traditional finance career, I went to the, the Alps to climb and ski um, for a couple of years and have my kids learn a new culture and language. And when you ski the Valley Blanche, it's, a, it's, a, it's like a 12-mile ski run in the backcountry uh, in the glaciers. Um, when you get to the, the, the bottom, sometimes you have to hike out to get back into town. And the lift that they put in in the 70s used to go all the way down to the glacier and then it the glacier receded and so now the lift you know doesn't reach the glacier and so they put in more stairs and they put in more stairs and now it takes about 20 minutes of walking up the stairs to get to the lift which then takes you up a couple hundred feet which gets you to the hotel that was where the glacier was a hundred <laughs> years ago right so this really high up there and as you're walking up the, the the stairs off the glacier, there's these little signs that tell you the year of where the glacier was. So after you hike for, you know, up about five flights of stairs, it says 2018. And then another five flights of stairs, it says 2016. And then 1990, you know, 1980. And you just realize how much we've lost from there. And my favorite thing to do, Gino, is to take some of my friends who are still skeptical around the climate change things on this journey. And as they're carrying their skis up this very long set of stairs and these years keep ticking by, it's really hard for them to not recognize 
um, that we are losing I bet. Uh, things because of this. Yeah. I bet. I love that visual marker. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's, it's hard not to come away with thinking like, wow, we should really uh, start focusing on doing something about this. Right? Yeah. Reminds me of the uh, visual marker at uh, Death Valley. Have you ever seen the um, the lowest um, point in the Death Valley where yes. they have it marked yeah. where the sea level is and you're looking up there and you're yeah. realizing that you're below sea level? Yeah. Yeah. It, I it, think these, it has a huge, yeah. I think these experiences are what's going to bring about the change yeah. we need from people. I don't think it's the IPCC report. I don't think it's Glasgow or Paris or those types of things. It's the recognition yeah. that our lives today are changing because of that. And we need those experiences, those wow uh, revelations to really bring people home. And it's, it's, it's what I opened the book with about. It's like, you know, my best friend growing up used to be a commercial, uh, wanted to be a commercial fisherman. It's hard to make a living with that. There's not enough fish. Another good friend, his, he played hockey growing up on ponds outside. His kids have never played hockey outside on a frozen pond. Um, these, I mean, you're a gardener, uh, you know, the changes in what you can grow and how you grow them. Those things are very palpable, real experiences. And that's what is really going to connect people to the fact that things are change, uh, changing, they're here, and they want to do something about it. Uh, and it's hugely liberating uh, and empowering when you let them know there are things that they can do about it. I mean, come face it, right? there's a lot of things that are hard to, uh, hard to do sustainably, like fly, right? Um, and so... Um, giving somebody some power back by letting them know that their money can be a force for good uh, is, is, it's, it's a wonderful thing to do. How do we create more of those experiences uh, for people to have the, well, I totally agree. Uh, like we do not need another white paper on climate. Like uh, yeah. this is not a um, place for about facts anymore. It is like, okay, the facts are there and there's enough white papers to go to the moon, you know, uh, potentially on, on climate at this point. But how, how do we do that part about creating the more visceral moments? You mentioned your friend with the pond, uh, not being able to teach his kids how to ice skate, the fishermen and your story about skiing. How can we do it from an investment? Like you and I are in the investment space and we're trying to channel this legacy capital into more, um, into outcomes that we're talking about more positive um, climate conscious outcomes. How do we do that? How do we merge those visceral moments with the investment space? Um, it's happening already. I'm, I'm happy to say, um, but the, the, the most powerful way is impact investing, right? Where you directly connect uh, someone's money with an outcome, and it's usually a single purpose outcome, you know, impact investing, at least in the traditional term, was you put your money into a specific project or a company that's doing good in, say, you know, we're going to create social housing in this inner city area, or we're going to create solar panel fired cook stoves in, in you know, sub-Saharan Africa. And you can actually see the changes that your money uh, can, can make. Now, that's very powerful, 
it's harder on the public or the mainstream investing side where people have become very distant from what their money is. You know, your mutual fund has 3,000 stocks in it. Right? It's kind of <laughs> hard to, you know, really know what's going on there. It's kind of like the food we eat. It's supposed to have one ingredient. It has, you know, 75 ingredients. We really don't know what's going on there. And so a way to connect that is to use the power of story, right? And just say, here are the companies that you're investing in. Here are the stories that they're doing. Did you know that the Empire Realty Company did an energy retrofit of the Empire State Building in 2010 and it now uses 38% less energy than it used to, right? And have you gone there recently? Because if you go to it, while you're waiting to get to the, you know, the observation tower, you're looking at videos and reading um, signs that talk about that energy retrofit, right? Let's connect people to what's possible uh, around the sustainable transition, and then they'll get excited about it. Um, I, I had a, um, when we first moved back to the States in 2016, I, uh, we bought a hybrid car, right? And it, it, it was plug in. And so it got about 20 miles to the, uh, electric battery and then it would switch over to gas. And most of the days we wouldn't drive 20 miles. So it was okay. We were always on electricity. Um, but when we ran out of electricity, and it's the, you could hear the gas engine come on. You could feel the vibrations come on. Uh, apparently, I would get a bit upset. I, I didn't recognize this in myself, but my wife would say, you know, Sam, you're starting to get kind of, you know, a, you know you're, you're starting to snap at the kids in the back. You're, you've lost all your patience. Like, what's going on? She says, you need to take a look at that. And I said, I think we don't use that much gas. I mean, we fill up like once a month. So I, it's not like... You know, I'm burning the planet down. Why? Why? What's going on here? And so I took a deeper look at it myself, and I realized that at our home, we got 100% renewable energy because we had a green tariff option from the local utility. And so when the batter, when the car was running on the battery, right, I was part of the solution. I was, I was, I was expressing demand for more renewable energy. And as soon as the gas engine turned on, I was part of the problem. I was saying effectively to Shell and Chevron, drill, baby, drill, right? And I hate sending that message. So my visceral reaction was, you know, and I'm taking it out on my family, was right there. And if we can connect people, like I, it took me time to t make that connection. If we can uh, connect people with that, and then provide them with solutions. That's what it's it, it's gonna be all about, right? Um, and so we tend to tell stories and talk about solutions, uh, so people can be excited about what's possible. Now, did you go from a couple things here, a couple threads earlier? You're talking about, um, I think, uh, before we started started this conversation we we're talking a little bit about uh background in philosophy and now finance i'm curious uh, what sequence did you go through was it finance first and then philosophy or philosophy and then <laughs> and then finance and then part of that is is how did that intersect the transition from legacy finance to 
what you're doing now and like where were you at in your life it seems like you were a little older at that phase so i'm curious also interested yeah. in how uh, you know what it felt like to sort of start anew to some extent well, I, I was a philosophy undergrad major. I loved philosophy and I love big picture thinking, um, but diving in deep and that suited uh, me. Um, and so I was a ski bum after I graduated from the University of Colorado uh, and I was climbing and skiing around the West and it was all fantastic. Um, um, but I ran into... Um, someone who was working on fixing finance from the financial advice perspective. And this was back in the early 90s. And a lot of what Wall Street was doing then was systematically ripping off investors, right? They had high commissions um, and expensive products. And they were really lining their pockets off the back of mainstream investors in the US, at least. And so um, I got, you know, we, we talked about efficiency and justice from my parents. I got excited about the fact that there was a better way, you know, fee-based advice using lower cost uh, strategic investments. Um, and also the fact that we would actually keep more money in people's pockets that earned it. And so that efficiency and justice, I got really excited about that. And so my career uh, was working on that twin revolution in advice from, you know, high commission to low commission and high cost to low cost. That was fantastic. And through that process, I realized that capitalism is one of the most powerful forces on the planet. Um, my sister, who worked in nonprofits in South Africa for decades, um, came to me after doing that for decades and said, hey, Sam, should I get an MBA? Uh, and I said, why would you want an MBA? And she's like, because this nonprofit stuff is working, but it's not working as fast as we'd like to. And some of these issues we're trying to solve need for-profit power, right? They need that, that, um, that capitalist force to, to drive it. And I realized then that I really wanted to use capitalism as a force to change um, things. I didn't know how. But I read Paul Hawken, I read Amory Lovins, I read John Elkington, uh, and I realized from them that their version of that capitalism could be a force for good if we just fix some of its issues. And since I was working in one of the most capitalist uh, investment advisor shops, the Dimensional Fund Advisors, the Free Market Chicago School, this really resonated with me. Let's use the power of capitalism. Uh, to fix things. And so for me, the light bulb moment went on when I realized that prices set by capitalism currently do not include all the things that are important to us, like clean air and human health and price of pollution, right? The market does a really good job, right, of weighing buyers and sellers, but it can't count what it can't price. And so I saw sustainable investing as a way to start getting capitalism to start pricing these externalities that are hugely important to us, but are not being factored by the market. Once that happens, companies and investors will start making decisions intelligently, right, based on proper inputs and outputs, which are missing right now. If we knew the cost of carbon, the cost of pollution, uh, it would factor into our investment decisions almost automatically. Um, 
And so I said, how is that going to come about? Uh, and it's basically mobilizing as much, my answer anyways, was mobilizing as much capital into sustainability as possible. Um, and so that's where the transition from mainstream to sustainable investing came from. Now, having worked with thousands of mainstream financial advisors, I figured that I would use that knowledge I had of their businesses and the networks that I had created in applying it to them and helping them start embracing sustainable investing. So um, that's the mission. Get a thousand financial advisors to shift a hundred billion from conventional to sustainable investing. And I think at that point, when we're already on the journey of doing that right now, um, but that will have uh, said to myself anyways, that uh, our efforts we're not in vain, that we've made made a difference. I would talk about that idea of price discovery. I think there's a lot of, there's a couple dimensions to that that I think are interesting. One is, is that price discovery is often assumed that, uh, or unlooked at. And so you have this idea that, what do you mean things aren't accounted for? Because it's so second nature at this point, how things are priced by the market per se. And you're right. The market is pricing or pricing what it can count. What it can't count is assumed to not be a cost. Yet we live in an ecological hole that everything is being accounted for. Just not in that one particular transaction, but it is being externalized. Can you unpack that a little bit for somebody who's just new to the space or even there's a lot of people, frankly, that have been in space for a while that I think um, would benefit actually from understanding that and unpacking that a little bit more with an actual example of what's happening out there and how prices really aren't truly fully accounting for the full impact. Yeah, sure. I mean, there's... uh, (laughs) thousands of examples, but I'll use a very um, um, clear one. It used to be that our beverage companies used glass bottles. I remember as a, as a college student, I could return um, the beer bottles that we bought for five cents and I'd get them back. And after, <laughs> for a while, I realized that these beer bottles had been reused hundreds of times. The glass was actually worn down on the outsides where the machines would reuse them. Um, and we don't really see that anymore, right? Everything's packaged in plastic or cans or something like that. And so the manufacturers in these companies have basically moved the costs off their books of recycling those bottles and refilling those vessels to now they've just used some plastic and then it goes out there into the environment. They are not paying for the collection of those plastics or the you know reuse of those plastics and they've largely fostered um fobbed off that responsibility on us or on society um but now all that plastic is causing us problems with our you know our oceans our fisheries uh and lots of uh, human health those costs aren't borne by anyone and so it seems to them that they've lowered their costs of their containers Um, but they've just moved it to another part of the world. Uh, And so sustainable investing, at least in my view of it, is all about 
properly allocating those costs. Uh, and I use that example because it's easy to see a piece of plastic. Yeah. It's actually much, much harder to see carbon. You can't actually see carbon dioxide, right? And that's the scary thing about it is it's odorless. It's You can't see it. Uh, you don't notice it. Um, but that pollution, the carbon pollution that we're pumping into the atmosphere is changing our world more rapidly than probably anything else. Uh, and so we need to rapidly get a price on carbon to change uh, that equation. If and this is the language that Al Gore uses. If people are allowed to dump CO2 into the atmosphere like it's an open sewer, that can kind of give you a, a more sense of that. If, if, if we're just filling our atmosphere with carbon and it's going to warm the planet and make it hard to live in, on, um, that gets you some way of thinking about we need to put a price on that. Um, but like I said, it's hard to see. Um, so, um, yeah. if they're called externalities, right, the technical term is, and we want to internalize those prices. And so putting a price on carbon would be the fastest way to, 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 uh, start ameliorating, uh, these problems. Similarly, doing those things with beverage manufacturers, there's a bill in Maine now and of actually having the producers of, um, these uh, uh, packaging uh, and containers to actually pay for the collection and the reuse and recycling of them up front. Uh, that would be another example of getting the costs allocated to the right place. Boy, Sam, you really hit on something. Uh, you know, I mean, the tragedy of plastic, I had a chance firsthand to experience this past weekend, 100 to 150 folks, including myself, um, cleaned up a mile and a half stretch along the Truckee River, which flows from the Lake Tahoe all the way down to the, uh, the Pyramid Reservation uh, on the Nevada side. And, you know, it's one of the most beautiful rivers in the West. And there was a mile and a half stretch there where 150 of us over a four hour period um, picked up over 10 tons of trash um, there was, you know, I mean, a lot of the, there was a lot of, you know, grocery carts and there's just tons of metals. Uh, but what it was is that there was enormous amount of plastic as well. And if somebody wants to see firsthand how something gets externalized and watching that, that plastic that's out in the sun baking uh, disintegrate into like mil uh, thousands of pieces as you try to pick it up. And it just breaks. And I know that that's flowing in that very, what I call the chi of the region. Uh, the Truckee River is is our chi. And that disconnect, we opened up talking about the divorce between emotions and money. There's also just an enormous divorce between our lifestyles and our very life forces um, that are outside of our bodies. And both outside yet support our bodies, our rivers. And... It's an exercise that fundamentally always gets at me because I can sit here behind the desk and I move capital. But when you actually get to that point where you're seeing the damage and you're seeing the Canadian geese kind of choking on garbage and you're seeing babies caught in plastic nets just along the river because all the plastic gets caught, you know, caught up in the, uh, the Russian willows, it's tough. 
it's tough. It, it's the same river that uh, that my family goes to swim in, and yep. it's this. Yeah, it's just it, it's kind of those experiences that you have when like you go to the top of the mountain. I'm guessing, and you're like, wow, there used to be a lot of snow here 20 years ago. And I came back, yep. and and I mean, my wife says, wow, I haven't seen you like this before. I haven't seen you for. I have so. I was both. It's like, gosh, I'm in the space. And I was still awakened. I was like, if yeah. I'm in the space and conceptually aware of it and awakened even more, it's like, wow, there's there's lots of work ahead. And I'd really encourage people to just get out on the ground and it will help you with your financial stewardship really fast. <laughs> well, um, kudos for you for doing that because there's, there's this tension or balance we have to strike because if you tell people about the threats that we are actually facing around climate change, right? If you actually read the IPCC report and see that, it's so scary, it's paralyzing, and it stops people from acting. And so we have to have a pro-action or, you know, a, a, a bias towards actually being able to do something about it and affect change. And I think you probably had an experience of both sides of that. True. In that Good point. That one afternoon, right? Like, oh my, this is awful, but hey, we've, we've done something about it. Um, there's a whole nother level to this, Gino, that is even drives the point even further home, which is the services that we get from the natural environment are quite critical to our survival. And one of my favorite stories around this is actually quite an old story now. Um, but we pollinate most of the fruit and vegetables that are around in, 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 that grow in California with bees, right? And, and, and we rely on those bees to actually grow our food. Uh, and, but it's hard to get the bees in the right place at the right time, especially since so many have had died off because of pesticides. And so they often truck in bees from Arizona in these big 18 wheeler rigs. Okay. And they can't stop driving because if they stop driving, the bees will fly away. Right. So they, they switch drivers halfway through, they drive through the night and they come in and they drop the bees off and then they do their work and they pollinate all the, the flowers and whatnot. And then they, they drive them back. To Arizona. Now just imagine for a second if those bees were not available to do that work. How many human hands, how many tools, how many, yeah. how would we replace those services, right? So those, it's not just the costs of our pollutions, but it's the value of the ecosystem and what it's providing for us. What is the value of that bee? Is it priceless? It's <laughs> seems like it's pretty close to it, right? Or it's at least worth the price of the food on that land. Um, and so when you combine those positive prices and the, 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 the costs um, it really starts to get a fuller picture of what's going into uh, capitalism, what's going into our decision-making uh, processes. The good news is there are so many actors now working on this problem. I mean, all the big six accounting firms, the auditors, there's framework setters, there's standard setters, there's um, non-governmental organizations, there's governmental, there's policy bodies, there's all kinds of people working on doing exactly this, pricing those things we can't price uh, so we can start getting better decisions being, being made. Um, that's all in the, you know, <laughs> that's the wonky, uh, wonky work that's, that's critically important um, 
but the other side of the, the work is getting more and more people to have the experience that you had out there saying, wow, this is a real problem and we need to do something about it. Sam, before we sign off, uh, there's, uh, there's a lot of um, dimensions to your existence, and I don't want to pretend that I touched on um, your entire uh, being uh, by any means, but I know that sometimes there's opportunities uh, for expression that may have not come up that uh, something that emerged as part of this conversation to see if you had anything else that you'd like to share with the audience. Wow, that's a very open-ended question. I appreciate uh, the opportunity uh, to share. I guess I'll, I'll I'll share a story of a friend of mine who, um, when I was working in London, encouraged me to take the leap towards working on sustainability full-time. Uh, and he said it this way. He worked in London for a long time in traditional financial services, uh, but this could apply to any industry, uh, any job. Uh, and he said he was just another cog in the wheel, you know, and he was making his money and he's doing his thing. And then he switched to working on sustainability in finance and he still goes to a similar office, does a similar work and everything like that. But now every day he jumps up out of bed and he's excited and he's happy in the shower and he's passionate. And he's like, it's the best job in the world, you know, and it used to be one of the worst. <laughs> um, and that simple change on working on impact, on working on sustainability, can provide you with purpose in life, which uh, is, uh, it's so liberating, so invigorating. Uh, it's It just brings your passion out and it erases so many questions and doubts about what you're doing. And since I've started this journey, I just, you know, uh, I feel like uh, I'm part of the solution uh, and less a part of the problem. That's a good feeling, and I don't have a lot of doubts about um, whether I should be doing this or not or those types of things. Um, so if you have an opportunity within your organization or to switch jobs or whatever, whatever you're doing in your life, or if it's volunteering or just moving your capital, uh, take that opportunity. It's there, and it's very rewarding. Some wise words. Thank you so much, Sam. Thanks for having me, Gina. I really appreciated the conversation. And before I jump, where could people learn a little bit more about your um, the work that you're doing in the world? Uh, the best uh, place to go is vertasset.com. That's V-E-R-T-A-S-S-E-T.com. And we have educational resources. We have a mutual fund you can invest in. We have a book you can buy. All kinds of ways for you to get intentional with your capital. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Uh, Sam is the real impact deal. So um, be sure to check out his offerings and um, lots of wisdom there. And thanks. Yeah, thanks again so much, Sam. Thank you, Gino. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening in to today's conversation on the poetry of impact. The podcast exists for and because of listeners like you. Be sure to subscribe to the Poetry of Impact podcast on your favorite podcast player. And if you have time, leave us a review. Thanks again and goodbye for now. Till next time. Thank you for listening to the Poetry of Impact podcast. For show notes and additional resources, visit poetryofimpact.com. 